This is Daniel Fagella, and you're listening to part one of an eight-part AI Futures series here on the AI and Business Podcast. Those of you who are longtime listeners are well aware that we cover AI use cases, trends, and best practices for getting the ROI out of AI. That is our normal modus operandi here on the show. But in our AI Futures series, we paint a longer-term picture as to where AI is taking us and what considerations we might want to bear in mind as we bring this new technology to life, not just over the course of the next year, but the next few decades. Some of you will remember from last summer, we had an AI Futures series that lasted about eight or nine episodes on the topic of AI governance. The famed author and professor Stuart Russell was our kickoff guest in that series. And our theme this time, with our eight-part series coming up here for AI Futures, is the future of the human experience. How is artificial intelligence going to change the way day-to-day life looks and feels for human beings? What is going to change around us? not just for one business application, but for the way that we live as people, as a society, as a country. It's a broad topic, but certainly an important one for those of us who want to make the world a better place. And we're excited to have as our first guest in this series, none other than Stephen Wolfram himself. Stephen Wolfram needs little introduction, but I'll give you some fundamentals. He was working on quantum field theory research at the age of 15 and became the youngest recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship at age 21. After completing his PhD, he worked at the Institute for Advanced Study, where dozens of Nobel laureates have worked, and great minds in the sciences, such as John von Neumann and Albert Einstein, spent a little bit more time in academia, but then founded Wolfram Research and his flagship software product, Mathematica. Wolfram Research and his other company, Wolfram Alpha, now have collectively some 700 employees, according to LinkedIn. Stephen is also well-known for his books. He is an active writer and thinker in the field of computation. Among his many titles are the very recent Combinators, A Centennial View, published in 2021, and his 2002 A New Kind of Science, for which he is well-known. I happened to meet Stephen at a private artificial intelligence event put on by some venture capitalists here in the Boston area about three years ago, and have since followed his work and his thought on artificial general intelligence. In other words, the big picture as AI becomes astronomically more powerful. At that event, Stephen had some really interesting thoughts about the longer-term future, and I'm grateful that I finally have an excuse to be able to pull him on for an interview to really crack open his mind. This interview is over an hour long of some of Stephen's deepest thoughts as to how artificial intelligence will fundamentally alter the way we live day-to-day life. He talks about AI, computation generally, the blockchain, and provides some tangible examples of what the future might look like. Very few people are as qualified to speak on computation, where it's headed, than Stephen Wolfram. And I am awfully glad that he is the kickoff interview in this new AI Futures series. We've got some other tremendous guests, and at the end of this episode, I'll be giving you a preview of some of the other guests in this series. But for right now, I want to dive right into this interview. This is Stephen Wolfram here on the AI and Business Podcast for our new AI Futures series on the future of the human experience. So, Stephen, it's been a while since we caught up. I think it was uh, some AI gathering in Boston two and a half years ago or something when I, I saw you last and riffed very briefly on these topics. Today, we get to go deep. and We're talking about the future of the human experience. I want to tee things off with probably the lightest weight question of my three-question list, which is, in your perspective, 
what are the technologies that might involve artificial intelligence that are kind of taking on us on a more divergent trajectory of what day-to-day human life is like now? What do you look at now that you say, this is a bigger deal than people realize? What jumps out to you? Well, there's a variety of things. I mean, the, the first thing is something that kind of comes out of science that I've done, which is, what does computation make possible? When we have, we have our physical universe that we happen to now think works in a very computational way, but we have this idea of computation. You set up rules for a system, and then you say, what does the system actually do? Turns out we can set up rules for systems and have them do incredibly amazing things, things which look in some ways like what we see in nature, things that we've never seen before. There's a huge diversity of possible things that we can make computational systems do. So there's this kind of ocean of computational possibility. That's something that where the real question is, what do we humans choose to make use of out of that ocean of computational possibility? So it's kind of like in the physical world, we mine different kinds of things in the world. We discover that there are you know, magnetic materials. We turn them into you know, magnets. We find liquid crystals. We turn them into displays, things like this. In the computational universe, there's this kind of ocean of computational possibility. Question is, which parts of it do we pick out to make use of for human purposes? Which things do we choose to use for our technology? Which things do we think are relevant for us, us as humans? And so, you know, in a, in a sense, a large part of my life has consisted in trying to make the bridge between what is possible computationally and what we humans care about. And so for me, that really turns into the story of computational language. How do we make something that is a language in which we humans can think about things that is that can make use of the things that sort of exist in this ocean of computational possibilities? And so the thing that for me is is sort of the the emerging. I mean, for me, it's been I've been working on it for forty years. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. kind of a, less emerging it's, it's, for you. Yeah. Less emerging for you. Yeah. Yeah. Is this kind of notion? of computational language, this way of describing everything in the world computationally in a way that is a bridge between the things we humans understand and the things that can exist in the computational universe. So, you know, the, the sort of the history of this a little bit is if you look back at sort of the history of, of uh, intellectual development, a big moment 400 years ago, invention of mathematical notation. Before that time, when people were talking about doing math, they were just using words to describe math. Then people invented things like plus signs and equal signs and so on. That made it a streamlined thing to, to sort of talk about math. And that meant that people could invent algebra, then calculus, and pretty much invent the mathematical sciences. And so, you know, the story of computational language is an attempt to invent a language that allows you to represent computational ideas in a streamlined way so that humans can understand it and so that we get to sort of explain, we, we get to bridge things to this computational universe of possibilities. You know, some places where this is directly relevant. Great, great, yeah. Let's say you want to make a computational contract. You know, right now, when we want to say what we want to have happen in the world, we might might write some kind of legal contract that will be written in, not quite English. Legalese. We'd write legalese. legalese yeah. Because we want a little bit more formal yep. than English. We want a little bit more precise. Right. But what if we could write it in a computational language? Then we are describing what we want in a precise, you know, we, we write it in code, basically. We're specifying what we want. Now, if we say, okay, we've got this computational universe of possibilities, we've got these AIs 
that can, in a sense, make use of anything that's in this computational universe, then we end up with these essentially computational contracts that are describing what we humans want to have those AIs that can make use of anything in the computational universe do. Like when we, when we say, you know, how do we make a constitution for the AIs? What that has to be is something that represents what we humans want. We have to have a way to represent what we humans want in a computational language that can then be applied to all those different possibilities that exist in this sort of computational universe that AIs can make use of. All right. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll poke in on this, Stephen, just to kind of start exploring these topics. All right. We've jumped off in an in immediately very Wolframish uh, direction, which is perfectly fine and to be expected here. There's a great, uh, for those of you who are listening in, there's an excellent uh, long form article on edge.org. If you type in edge.org, Wolfram, there's a very lengthy coverage of kind of this mining analogy and this language analogy. And, and this is uh, an interesting branch of thought uh, that obviously you've been working on for quite some time. When you think about what that spins into, clearly, you know, your own work is, is on computation itself, and you're known for that. Your company develops, you know, various and sundry languages and capabilities that you're working on. When you look at where this is going, you, you mentioned contracts. It would seem as though, and tell me if I'm wrong here, and maybe this is what you intend. If we're looking for contracts that handle X, or we're looking for a language that handles, I mean, maybe we could come up with some other examples. It would seem like different domains might have their own entirely different languages because the syntax and the kinds of relationships and the kinds of interactions that we have to represent like we do with math would be somewhat domain specific if it's you know chemistry has its own you know set of symbols and whatnot but no. let me know if you're thinking about some general no. it'll cover it all language no no you see one of the one of the things that we learned this is sort of probably the most important intellectual discovery of the last hundred years is that there can be universal computers if you go back to 1900, for example, okay. and you ask people, how would I do a square root calculation? How would I do this? How would you, I do that? People would say, well, you need to go to this you know, place and you need to buy this piece of hardware that works in this particular way. Yep. And uh, you might think if you want to do different kinds of computations, you need a different computer. The big thing that got discovered with Gödel's theorem and then Turing machines and so on is that isn't true. You can have a single universal machine that can simply be programmed to do different kinds of things. And that, that idea, I mean, that's the idea that launched software, launched the computer revolution, et cetera. That idea that there can be this one, there's this one notion of computation that can be sort of directed in different places, that's a really important idea. Now, I myself have added to that with this thing called principle of computational equivalence, which basically tells one that it isn't the case that you have to go to huge amounts of effort to build up something that is capable of universal computation. Universal computation is actually something quite ubiquitous that happens in lots of the systems that we see in nature and, and so on and so on, and, and also happens at a molecular scale in biology and all kinds of other places. So it isn't, in fact, the case that you might think it would be the case that these kind of different domains would need a completely different infrastructure. That's not true. There's just this one computational infrastructure that is the thing that corresponds to universal computation that can deal with all these different domains. And, and the sort of big science discovery for me in the last year or so has been the realization that physics actually works that way too. That underneath space and time and all the things that we know about physics is just a piece of computational infrastructure, which is again, precisely equivalent to all these other ones. Now, when it comes to us humans, 
thinking about things, we might have different ways to think about things. But notice that human language has been fairly successfully universal. That is, if you say, can I discuss this or that thing? It is not the case that people say, oh, whoops, if I'm going to talk about this, I can't use human language to do that. You, you manage to find ways to use language to describe lots of different things. And that's a similar phenomenon, although one we don't understand as well, to the phenomenon of universal computation. So, so it's, it's as you think about different kinds of things, yes, the, the specific exposure of the user interface, so to speak, necessary for specifying things in chemistry versus things in law and so on is different. But the underlying stuff, the underlying sort of computational infrastructure is exactly the same. And actually, the, the, you know, in my own work in building computational languages, I mean, one computational language, Wolfram language, which I've been doing for 35 years now, the fundamental infrastructure of that is an extremely simple computational idea that just gets built out in all these different directions. No, I mean, so, so I mean, I think that the, the, the thing to understand is a couple of things, and I probably said them too quickly here, but, but um, the you know, first point is there's this sort of computational universe of possible things that you can make computational systems do. The sort of big discovery there is even when the rules that you use for the computational system are very simple, the behavior of the system can be immensely complicated. Yep. That's the trick that nature uses, for example. Rule, rule 23 or whatever it is. I, f I forget. Rule, Pardon me. Rule okay, rule 30. The, there we go. Yeah. It's is the, is the favorite yeah, discovery yeah, yeah, on that. Yeah. The first thing is there's incredible richness in the computational universe. Second thing is uh, sort of how do we humans connect to that richness? And if we look at the, the sort of evolution of human culture and human civilization, we are gradually sort of uh, looking at tiny little corners of that computational universe and deciding, yes, this piece of the computational universe is something we care about, we can make use of in technology, we can incorporate into our ways of setting up society and things like this. And you know, when it comes to thinking about AIs, AIs have access to this whole computational universe of possibilities. And the vast majority of things that can be done in that computational universe are things that are utterly incomprehensible to us. Oh, yeah, it's like, why so. would you do that? You know, there's no point in doing that. It's just making some weird pattern that doesn't seem purposeful. Well, but then it turns out that weird pattern turns out to be something that eventually people realize, oh, that allows you to do this kind of genetic editing that we didn't understand before. And it's tremendously important because we have this whole chain of explanation for why that's something that we care about. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm following you. I'm following you. And I think it's interesting, obviously, today, Stephen, you know, as you're well aware, we do have rather different infrastructures, right? Uh, somebody doing computer vision with NVIDIA chips is running something very different than folks who are doing something else. But hypothetically, we could get to this place where the hardware and or even the, the software itself is all sort of running in a single language. And if that great single language was your namesake, you know, what a, what a glorious world that would be, I guess. But where you're, where you're positing here is that, you know, hypothetically, all that can be done with computation or even with sort of decisions and domains we want to understand could hypothetically be done in one language that would be able to unify programs, unify our purposes, allow machines to interact and understand each other. This is sort of the grand hypothesis here from following you. Well, I mean, the thing to say is that one of the features of computation universality is it can be achieved by many different systems. Even these tiny little systems that, you know, these cellular automaton things that I study yep, a bunch, yep. 
all these things that we study in hypergraph rewriting systems for physics and so on, these all achieve universal computation. The infrastructure, the machine code doesn't matter. The machine code, once you don't have a totally trivial machine code, you can build on top of that something which will be completely equivalent in terms of the computation abilities that it has. And so, in a sense, we might say, you know, we're very proud of what biological evolution has delivered to us in terms of, you know, the way our brains work and all that kind of thing. But in the end, it doesn't really matter. If what we're interested in is being able to do computation, you can do that with fluid dynamics. You can do that in all kinds of different ways. You don't need all of the elaborate hardware that's been built for us humans. And, you know, the thing that becomes important, though, is you say you can do the same computation. You can have the weather doing the same kind of computation as is happening in a brain. But the question is, we might say, but we don't care about the computation that's happening in the weather. We only care about computation that's happening that we sort of understand the point of in our brains. So I think that the thing to realize, in, you were asking before about sort of the, the, the nearer term aspects of things. I think that the big story is kind of the use of computational language as a way to bridge from what we're currently thinking about to what's possible in the computational universe. The development of computational language enables something that's a little bit like the development of literacy or perhaps like the development of human language originally. It provides a way to express things in a more coherent fashion, but with this new feature that it expresses things sort of in collaboration with, with, with computers or AIs. It's not something where it's just for us humans to communicate one to another. It's something where we get to use this kind of huge reservoir of computational capability that exists in the computational universe. And so, you know, then the question of what, what does that mean for us? It's like saying, you know, people might say, oh, everything interesting that could be invented has been invented. This is a a very foolish thing to uh, say. Remarkably and foolish, yeah. at, Right. And as we look at the computational universe, we realize what an absolutely microscopic fraction of what's possible we have explored. But the issue is, what do we choose to explore? What do we care about? The same thing comes up. You know, you're doing mathematics. You're doing chemistry. You know, if you're doing chemistry, you can make all kinds of molecules. The question is, which molecule is worth making? You're doing mathematics. You can write down all kinds of theorems. The question is, what theorem is worth proving? And those are questions that are much more reflecting back on us. What do we want? How does that connect to sort of our history than it is what's in principle possible? And it, well, so, this is going to, yeah, this will steer us, I think, into the next, when we start making this a little bit visual, having people think, what does this unlock in terms of possibilities? Like you said, fully agree, and you understand computation greater than I, but to a greater extent, almost unlimited beyond the, the microscopic domain that we've explored. You know, Bostrom talks about the same thing in terms of the, the state space of sentience or intelligence or minds, for example, you know, a, a cricket versus a human versus, I mean, there's hypothetically so much more that we could, you know, go on and on and, and turn ourselves into. I think the question is, let's say we tap further and further into this computational world, we unlock its potential. Where is this taking us? And I'm actually going to open this with a quote of yours from, from that Edge article that I'd mentioned beforehand. And this is one of the things... I would like to have a great answer to is, what do the derivatives of humans in the future end up choosing to do with themselves? One of the potential bad outcomes is they're just playing video games all the time. The future civilization, everyone is just sort of uploaded into some World of Warcraft space, eternally playing video games. 
the reason I anchor us there is because often when you know I speak to folks, and normally we're t- you know head of AI, Raytheon, Comcast, it's it's kind of practical people. If I think about where is AI taking us, it's sort of next level of business capabilities or a next level of of functionality on my cell phone, or you know you had mentioned contracts, which is not trivial, but but it's not necessarily mind blowing. When you think about where you know artificial intelligence more is taking when they run the world, yeah, that's it. Becomes it. more interesting when computational contracts run the world. Okay, yeah, yeah, it yeah. Becomes more interesting when. When I mean, you know, we are seeing the first moments right yeah. now of of sort of AI running the world, and and the way that happens is if you look at, for example, the way that automated content selection works on the web, the way that search engines, news feeds of social media, all those kinds of things, those are AIs that are determining what we humans see, and often those AIs were first set up with some human intention, like you know, maximize Profit, ad revenue, sure. or yeah. yeah, right. So, but that was the, you know, that's the paperclip intention, so to speak. Okay. Then the question is, what actually happens, right? And the answer is the AI, and it really is essentially an AI, is determining that the best thing to do is to polarize those humans and get one group to do this, another group yeah. to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. this whole business of automated content selection on the web is, in fact, I think, sort of, it's the first skirmish in the sort of great AI war. Almost no one's talking about that, Stephen. Almost no one is framing it at that level. So this is a really interesting place to start. I'm sure you have a lot more to go into here. Right. That particular thing, you know, I, I happened to do some testimony for yep. the Senate committee. I saw that. Um, I agreed to do it because I thought that there were sort of ideas from computation that were important to avoid certain incredibly silly things from being done. And I sort of backed myself into coming up with a, a theory about how one could deal with sort of this automated content selection business and uh, it seems to be the only plausible theory. It seems like every time Jack Dorsey or somebody has to say, well, what in principle could be done? He, he trots out my, my theory, which is a little bit, little bit disquieting to me because I spent only two days thinking about it. The thing that's happening is, you know, people say, well, you know, gosh, we could have, you know, a Terminator scenario where the AIs take over, right? Well, it's actually happening because what's happening is the determination of you know, what is the right search result to show you, the determination of what is the right article to show you on your newsfeed, that's done, you know, by an AI, which at some level had a computational contract specified for it, that was, you know, go maximize the ad revenue. Yeah. Okay. Now go find out how to do that. Yeah. You know, run this loop, train yourself, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there are things that are a little bit more humans, you know, human fingers are in there I'm a little sure. bit more than people might admit. But the fact is, that's an example of where kind of you're seeing something which is essentially a, a thing that's happening where the AI is making use of sort of discoveries that it can make in the computational universe that end up being things that sort of determine how things work for us humans. Let's just use that example, which in my opinion is, is near term. I, I want to get into a little bit of your upload perspective. And you've talked about AIs advising humans until the humans are just better off just flowing along with the advice of those AIs, which which I hope to write about in the relatively near term. I think it's a very interesting use case. But let's start here because you, you opened up kind of the, you use a battlefield by the way, this is already This is already an example of that because it's like, in principle, yeah. you know, you could look through all of those newspapers and figure out. Yes, you know, this is a great example of that. Undeniably, I'm right. I'm right with you. So yeah. So we'll, let's let's uh let's use this as a spearhead. To you, this is a bigger representation of the power dynamics that are going to come to bear with artificial intelligence in a broader sense. Where does this momentum take us? You know, there's some 10 year, 20 year future. There's the way algorithms work within big tech and the ecosystem that we play in now, and they're steering us somewhere. Clearly, you thought about this for your your kind of Senate engagement there. 
Where do you see the natural momentum of that taking us, good or bad? I think you're leaning more on the bad side, understandably, yeah, well, but go ahead. No, I, I think that, you know, the thing that's interesting is, you know, philosophy is something people talk about and they kind of debate it and they debate the same thing for thousands of years. And what's interesting is the moment when all of those thousands of years of debate have to turn into a piece of code and something definite has to happen. And what we're seeing is, you know, the political philosophy, the debates of political philosophy, eventually they have to become code. So what that means is, you know, you say, okay, let you, let's say you have an AI that's controlling the money supply and it's, you know, people decide central bankers are better replaced by, you know, AI algorithms and you can debate the details of that. Sure, sure. So an AI is, is controlling all of this stuff. Okay, then the question is, what do we want the AI to do? Do we want the AI? And people might say, well, the AI should make everybody happy. Okay. You can clearly sort of prove that that isn't possible. Right. So then you say, okay, do you want to make 80% of the people really pretty happy, but 20% of the people will be very unhappy? Do you want to make, you know, 99% of people reasonably happy, 1% very unhappy? Do you want to make 1% super happy and the other people, right? So, so you're thrown into what have been debates in political philosophy for thousands of years. Um, and, so then the question is, it's sort of a, a, what, what this does to us is it puts this, this focus back on us. What do we want? Because we've been able to get away with saying, well, we don't really want to define that. We're going to you know, do this. We're going to elect this leader. We're going to elect that leader. And we'll sort of hope they figure it out and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or you know, this person's going to take over, et cetera. But if we have to say, this is the constitution of country X, here it is. It's a computational contract. Anybody can read it. And this is how the AI is going to work. This is the constraints. This is not the program, not the detailed program, but this is the contract. These are the constraints under which the AI will work. This is what the AI is trying to optimize. This is et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One thing that's interesting about that is it forces people, and it will be an ugly thing, and I don't think people will have an easy time with it, to sort of say, well, what do we really want? Now, you know, a question that comes up then which I think has been very clear in this pandemic, for instance, is it's really good that there isn't just one country in the world because that's a very fragile situation. Because if that, you know, if the computational contract of that one country has an unexpected consequence that happens to make the species extinct, we're kind of toast. Yeah, sort of yeah. Um, and so one of the thing dynamics that's sort of interesting now is, you know, I'd be curious, is there a sort of back of the envelope way to derive the fact that with 7 billion people and the earth that the size it is, that there should be about 200 countries. Why are there 200 countries? Why are there not 10,000 countries? Why are there not five countries? And, you know, so that's a, and, and when you start thinking about kind of uh, having things where you can have sort of, when things work with computational contracts, you are, you're able to, well, okay, so people might say, you know, they might say, when there are computational contracts, well, there can, for example, there can be many more contracts in the world because they're mostly operating automatically. Um, yeah, you can have yeah, yeah. sort of micro control what's going on. Now, the thing to realize, I mean, you know, if you look at the operation of typical governments, they already operate in many ways very much like computational contracts. They are implemented, you know, the rules that exist and so on are implemented by people, but fundamentally they're following some set of rules, some set of codes and so on that determine what's going on. And so in a sense, if you get to the point where things are really actually technically implemented as computational contracts, there can be a great deal more complexity in how those things work. So let me give an example. 
So a thing that, uh, let's say you're setting up a transportation system and you're doing it in a not very computational way. Well, you make there be a train that goes once an hour and everybody knows that's when the train goes. If you say, now we can use sort of sophisticated computation, then you say, well, we don't want just a train that goes repetitively once an hour. We want all these little cars, you know, autonomously driven cars running around that will arrive at precisely the right time for each person, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And looked at from the outside, that looks like this very complicated, very hard to understand thing that is being run by this essentially collection of computational contracts and, and potentially being run by something which looks like AI. So, so one of the things that is the case about the current world is because there's a lot of sort of trains that run once an hour, the world as it's set up with governments and so on looks quite predictable. Like you kind of know what's going to happen in certain circumstances. Once everything is micro-optimized with everything with its own little computational contract that's doing this or that thing, all you know, when if, if you as a human say, I want to understand what's going on, I want to understand what my sort of computational government is doing, good luck. Same issue that you already see in this automated content selection on the web. If you say, why did that search result get ranked in this way? It's like, well, I don't know. You know, you look inside the neural net and it's yeah. it has this pattern of tweets and so on. You can't know. So so the thing that's sort of interesting about one of the one of the trends, I think, is that the question is, can humans understand what's going on in their world? Now, it's been in the past when nature was the main thing we were dealing with, we weren't really expecting to understand it. It was just like things happened in nature, you know, the thunderstorm came, things, you know, whatever. Yeah, we, we prayed to the moon god and, you know, we knew that the river god would rise at this time-ish because we had enough accidents to know that maybe that thing was predictable, but yeah. Right, but, but mostly it was just like the world does what it does yeah. and we don't know what's going on. And then we decided, and then we had got science, we got modern science, and modern science started telling us things can be predictable. And then we had the Industrial Revolution, and we started building machines where we could see the, the gears moving, and we could say, this is what's going to happen. Well, the problem is that in this sort of computational universe, the set of things where what goes on is predictable to us is a very small set. And in fact, most of what happens in the computational universe, if we want to allow computation to achieve what it can achieve, almost by definition, what it does will not be predictable. That is... If we, if we want to say, we need to understand what this is going to do, well, why have it do it at all? You could just jump to the end and say, we know what it's going to do, so let's just go to wherever, wherever we're going to. So in other words, the history, the last 100 years or so, has been this time when we thought we could predict stuff. We thought we could know how things worked. Um, we thought there were systems that, and, and the systems that we were, you know, we could construct technologically, et cetera, were ones where we could readily understand what was going on. Now, we also got the idea that science can just figure out everything. That idea is wrong. And that idea is, is uh, what's interesting about that idea is the things that I've done in my efforts in science kind of prove that even from within science itself, science can prove that it cannot predict yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So this phenomenon of computational irreducibility is the phenomenon that even when you know the underlying rules for a system, you 
will not be able to predict what it's going to do essentially any faster than just running those rules and seeing what happens. So what's the role for humans? You know, let's just say we have this imaginary universe. We have, I'm going to throw some random examples out there. If you want to use better ones, please do. But I just want to make this tangible for the audience. The idea of computation in abstract sense, you live there all day. My audience certainly doesn't. So we're, we're going to get down to brass tacks here. So we've got trains running on time. We've got laws being executed about homicide and theft and what, what have you. We've got businesses that are buying and trading commodities. Maybe it's uh, you know iron or something that we pull from the ground. Who knows? We have a lot happening. And to a great extent, this is being hyper-optimized by what whatever goal has been set and by potentially AI systems that are able to take and enact those actions based on the circumstance they find themselves in. What's the stock market doing in the Philippines and in Japan? And based on that, how much of this am I going to buy for the, my manufacturing plant from this location versus this? All that stuff. Astronomically more complicated than humans could ever understand. You know, eventually, eventually, as, as the whole machine becomes even more beyond our imagination than it is today, maybe three orders of magnitude, more unimaginable, more, more ununderstandable, where is the role for human beings? Right. So, I mean, the humans get to say what they want to have happen. Because the thing that one has to realize is all of the stuff with AIs and computation and all those kinds of things, there's many, many possibilities. Many things could be done there. I talked about sort of the computational universe full of sort of this ocean of possibilities. The question is, which things from that ocean do you choose to do? Yeah. Because the whole ocean, in a sense, there's, no, there's nothing meaningful about the whole ocean. It's every possibility. The role for us humans in, is, is to define the goal. So people say, you know, what's going to be automated? There are all these jobs being automated, right? What jobs are, in a sense, you know, unautomatable. Well, one job that is fundamentally unautomatable is deciding what job you want to do. Yeah. Because in, in the end, it's like, what do we want to do? There is no right answer to that. There's nothing, there's no mathematical theorem. There's no sort of principle of, of anything that defines that. It's simply an arbitrary choice. And within this sort of computational universe of possibilities, we're like throwing a dart in one particular place that is, okay, this is what us humans want to do. Now, when it comes to sort of the organization of the world, it's like you might say, well, if, if it was the case that the whole world all agreed about a one country, one culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, everybody just agreed, we're going to throw the dart in this particular direction. That will be one possible outcome. I think that's a very fragile outcome that uh, hopefully won't come to pass. It's been pretty interesting to me in this pandemic that we see a a sort of profound effect of that kind of outcome, which is there's pretty much only one science in the world. That is, in you know, at times in the past, people might have said, oh, there's this one group over here that has this theory about science. There's another group that has this theory about science. In today's world, pretty much everybody believes the same story of essentially mathematical science. And that's meant that, you know, you look at every different country in the world, same kinds of things are being done, same epidemiological models, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Probably not a great idea, in fact, because it turns out much of what is going on was surprisingly hard to understand. It was not correctly understood. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a, the story of the pandemic is a, is a scary story of computational irreducibility. It's a scary story of, you know, you think you have a model that can predict what will happen. Turns out it doesn't actually work that way. You know, it, it has been very hard to predict what will happen. The models have been surprisingly bad. You know, I looked at this early on in the pandemic, and my main conclusion was it was really hard to tell what was going to happen. Yeah. So I, you know, I kind of gave up and I said, <laughs> it's not. Um, but that means that's actually an example of where, in the end, the role of humans has to be 
to decide, you know, we have all this automation. We'll be, we'll be able to automate lots of, making lots of things happen in the world, perhaps in very optimal ways. The question is, what do we want to make happen? Yeah. Just to, to dive a, a little bit into the future, just being mindful of time here, you know, you've done a great deal of writing about the farther future of, you know, where we could find ourselves. I could imagine, I'm just going to throw an example out there, you reference history more than most people that write about AI. You know, if you were to ask, you know, some, someone in Homeric Greece, you know, what, what they want to have happen, uh, they would give you things like, I don't know, more grapes, uh, less less uh, marauders coming from the shores, um, you know, more corn growing or something like that. More sons, maybe, right? More more offspring. They would give you aims of that kind. Today, if you were to ask, uh, you know, Stephen Wolfram or, uh, you know, myself, uh, you'd get another set of answers. My supposition um, is that as, you know, the world becomes more complicated, and, and frankly, if we're able to, whether it be with stronger AI or whether it be with brain-computer interface, kind of crack open a little bit more of, of sort of mental power, then sort of, you know, monkeys would just ask for more bananas. Right now, compared to some hypothetical future intelligence, we're just asking for more bananas. Is there a, is there a crack open where the what to get done actually has its own wider vista that deserves to be opened? What's your take there? You know, I think one of the things to realize is the human condition has not changed in the course of history. I mean, if you, if you watch some Greek play or something, it could be a modern soap opera. You know, the, they're the same human issues. Of course you know, they, they are. Of course they are. Yeah, no one's arguing with right. you there. Okay, so, so one of the questions is, is the sort of the story of our purposes something which is just a feature of the human condition? And while the human condition stays the way it is, those are going to stay more or less the same, or is it something different? I mean, what we see, so, you know, there are things that will affect the human condition. For example, effective immortality will greatly affect the human condition. I mean, what, and my guess is that will affect things more than your average brain-computer interface. My guess is that, you know, there'll be things like the ability to make a copy of yourself. That will be an important issue. There'll be things, and, and so when you say, how will what it means to be a human evolve, the answer is, I suspect, a lot of the things that are the potential future will look bizarre and pointless in the way that things that happen in the computational universe look to us bizarre and pointless. They don't connect to what we currently know. And so, you know, I think one of the things to realize is we're sort of, the things that we think are worth doing are deeply embedded in our time and our situation and so on. And what is perhaps, um, if you look back at history again, you know, I was amused. I was visiting some archaeological site in, in South America at some point recently. And, uh, you know, the person was showing, showing us around and they, they kept on saying, and that thing was for ceremonial purposes. Okay. In quotes. In other words, in quotes yeah. We don't have, we don't, we have no idea. clue what's going on here. Yeah, yeah. We, we have no idea. Yeah. And so that was something from a few thousand years ago. And it's like, there were the, you know, people built these elaborate things out of stones and so on. We have no idea what was going on. And even if we'd been back there talking to those folk, you know, we might not have really had a good idea what was going on because it was like, well, we're doing this. We're representing our God of something or other in this way. And it's like, that seems kind of, I don't understand what the point of that <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah. So I think that the thing that is is worth realizing is that when we think about kind of the evolution of, of sort of human purposes and, and what us humans will do, it is likely to be incomprehensible to us today in the same way that the internal operation of an AI 
is is incomprehensible to us. Some some people, Stephen, are fearful of that. They would say, "Hey, you know, if you ask a you know a cricket what it wants, it's going to want more tall grass." And I don't know what the hell crickets want, but it's going to be very simple, relatively speaking. If you ask a human today, okay, we have some kind of bounded reality. If you ask the post-human grander intelligence of X number of centuries in the in the future, or maybe decades, who knows? It will be mostly things we are essentially uh, unable to imagine, never mind sort of genuinely comprehend. Some people would say, well, for that reason, we got to push the brakes on kind of that that trajectory, whether it be BMI, whether it be strong AI, et cetera, because, hey, that's going to take us to a wonky place. Other folks would say, well, aren't we glad that we went from cricket goals to chimp goals to people goals? Don't we have more meaning? Why not allow it to bloom again and bloom again and continue to move up that hierarchy? Some folks, pure fear. Some folks believe we should pursue it. There's obviously a middle ground. Where, where do you stand there? Well, I mean, I think, you know, again, we look at history and there have been times in history where people say the ancients had it figured out. They wrote the sacred books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They defined what we should be doing. Yeah. And then there are times where we say, ah, the ancients didn't know anything. We, we're going to figure this all out again for ourselves and we're going to look only to the future. You know, we're at a time right now where mostly we're looking to the future. And, you know, although there's some people who look to the past. And I think one of the things to understand is, it's kind of like there is no right answer. It's not like there is the perfect post-human with the perfect set of goals. It's, it's always going to be a story of, of kind of what, you know, you're going to want some grounding. So one of the things I've, I've sometimes wondered is this time in history is the first time where we get to record in considerable detail pretty much everything we humans do. You do, do more of that than most but people, Stephen. I, I do much more of that than most. <laughs> You've yes. been on that tip and for not, quite not, some time. Yes, right. Not completely unaware of its of its uh, of its implications. So you know the issue will be sometime in the future. People will say, "Well, now we can do anything. We are uploaded. We're you know we can we can create any world we want. We can do anything we want." How do we ground ourselves? What do we choose to do? Do we ground ourselves at all, or do do we just explode through gradients of bliss in some infinite domain of freedom in a well, in a computational sugar cube with? an ever-evolving, you know, spewing of new fecundity of goals, and who cares about grounding if we're just in our well, sugar yes, cube, right? Right, right. So this is, a, I mean, if you look at the history, right, history has involved lots of grounding. You know, the wisdom of the ancients has been important true. in people's true. view of, of, uh, of their goals Very and so true. on. And I think one of the things that is kind of amusing to think about is that our times may have more responsibility than we think in the sense that when everything is possible, People may say, let's look at what those humans did when there were still constraints, when not everything was possible. We are the let's ancients. <laughs> we are the ancients, right. Stephen. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're the ancients. <laughs> let's go analyze what the ancients did yeah. because that's what's really meaningful wow. because now we can do anything. So to get it to be meaningful, it's constrained by, by what the humans did when they still had constraints. Now, when, if you think about what will happen, you know, if you, if you take off the brakes, so to speak, and you say, let's explore sort of the universe of all possibilities. So for me, that's kind of a funny thing because a bunch of the science that I've done in exploring the computational universe is precisely about that. It's about exploring the universe of all possible universes. And so the thing that, you know, I have to kind of, uh, it's funny for me is that, you know, there is a view of the future of the human condition, so to speak, that says, you know, the rest of eternity is spent exploring the universe of all possible universes, yes. or in a sense, yes. doing 
Right. I mean, you know, that's the science that I've done. I'm borderline is, advocating for that. <laughs> yeah, I, right. I, I mean, there's a lot of strength you know, in that position. It, it, I think. Right. It's a, it's a weird possible future for the for the history of, of everything, that kind of what gets done. But but the thing you have to understand is because of this phenomenon of computational equivalence, in a sense, what's going on is not fundamentally different. That is, you might say, oh, they're going to explore all these different possibilities. It's going to go off in all these different directions. But this is the power of sort of this idea of the principle of computational equivalence, this idea of universal computation. In the end, it's all the same story. The only thing that makes it different is its details. So you might say, you might say, you talk about super intelligences and things like this. I think that's kind of a nonsense idea because oh, I think, that the, uh, I mean, the, the basic so the Bostrom and the Gertzels of the you just you just just look down your nose at those schmucks. I don't think that the idea that there's sort of a fundamentally higher level of intelligence. I don't think that makes any sense. Than humans. Well, then the computers we have, the humans, you know, yes, you can have a higher clock speed. You can have the neurons running, you know, clocking it. It was once just algae on this planet, you know? I mean, were we fundamentally in the same place just because of this computational idea? Yeah. And we're in the same place as the weather is, in the same place as geology. We're in the same place as, as all these different things. You know, we are very proud of the fact that, you know, we've built all these different, you know, constructs and so on. But, but think about geology, for example. It's built plenty of constructs. Yeah. It's got all these elaborate rocks and different shapes. It's got all these things going on. And it's a piece of kind of, uh, you know, the human exceptionalism story is a story made up by humans, so to speak. I'm proud only of being part of the spewing fecundity that will spill into something astronomically beyond myself. So I, I share none of what you're articulating. But I think many humans right. do. As I'm sure if horses could talk, they would have their horse superiority that they would articulate. Right. But I think, you know, it's, it's a question of, you know, people still wonder, you know, do the whales have a civilization, so to speak? Sure. We don't understand. We don't know. It's something which is, you know, the only thing we know about is what we humans have made. We get to kind of uh, uh, define what, um, I mean, when we look at it through the human lens of the humans of the early 21st century, we see certain kinds of things. And if we say, what will the, quotes humans of the 24th century, so to speak, much of what they will be doing will be to us. It's just some random computation that's going on. It's purely ceremonial from <laughs> our point of view, <laughs> yeah. so to speak. You're bring, it, bringing that full like, circle again, yeah. Right, I mean, but, but the thing is, the thing to, to try to understand is, you know, it's an interesting question if you say, okay, you know, let me one day become, you know, cryonically frozen and I'll, I'll wake up in, you know, 300 years <laughs> sure, or something. Sure. And then the question is, what happens? You know, we, you are imprinted with your set of goals and your set of ideas time, that come yeah. from the 21st century. Yeah, yeah. And how does that map into the 24th century? The thing to realize is that you might think that, that this sort of whole process of of making everything scientific, making everything sort of able to be automated, all those kinds of things, that there was some sense of, of fundamental progress in all of that. I think the thing to realize is that, that at some level, when you have sort of that infinite progress, it is also meaningless. And you know what is to us meaningful is something that is directly connected to us yes. as we experience things with our current set of uh, views of the world and so on. And if you say, let's project ourselves into this thing that is you know, perfect, wonderful, totally automated, what do we then think about that? The answer is, 
we'll think most of it is meaningless and we'll pick out of it only those things which we can kind of project into ways that we think about things today. So to ask what's there is kind of to say, I think that the, the transition to that phase, my feeling is the way that things maintain meaning is by a comparative kind of gradualness to the way these transitions happen. That is, if you look at what we understand about things from history, what we understand about, uh, you know, it's a lot of sort of gradual changes. If the change is too dramatic, it's like sort of the paradigm shift of meaning. It's like people don't know, you know, they what don't know what do the point it? is. Yeah, yeah. It's always notable if you look even within a couple of generations, like what the kids are doing. It's like, I don't know what the kids yeah, are doing. Yeah, it all yeah. seems meaningless. Yeah, yeah. But the very fact that there's a certain gradualness to that happening means that you have a hope of being able to understand it. If you say, let's go look at something completely, you know, uh, something which is also an example of, of sort of intelligence at a computational level, but completely away from our sort of human intelligence, it's completely implausible that we can understand it in those terms. I think it's worth understanding that, you know, you talk about um, the sort of nearer term aspects of, of, um, of these things. I think there are there's some interesting questions, like, for example, the way that government works. You know, that is a phenomenon of, you know, the period of literacy in human history. Before there was literacy, there were different systems. You know, things like democracy get enabled, in, in, in non, not in small part, by literacy and yes, by yeah. those kinds of things. Bureaucracy gets enabled by literacy. So a question you might ask is, what is enabled by kind of the computational future? What are the kind of mechanisms that can exist there? Yeah, we're interested in particular for this interview, how the dynamics of power change, which I think obviously will shift greatly with some of these dynamics coming to light. So I, maybe we can close on some of your thoughts about that dynamic. What's the world we're yeah, stepping well, I, into? I, I, I certainly haven't figured this all out, but I think the thing that one question is, what does computational democracy look like? For example, I'll give you an example of something. It's kind of a a little bit inspired by kind of blockchain type ideas. But, you know, for instance, it's like you make a decision. You vote for something. We do something like that. There's a whole chain of consequences that your particular decision has. Right now, we only know in very vague terms what consequences our decision had. But, you know, there's nothing to say that you can't know that in great detail. It's like, well, you voted for this. You, you pressed this button at this time. Okay, there's this whole chain of things that happened, and maybe some of them are a little hard to understand. But, but in the end, that caused country X to invade country Y. And, um, you know, so that's your kind of, you know, you can actually see the backtrace. I mean, that's an example of a type of thing that is enabled by computation that we don't have right now. You can ask, you know, what does that do for sort of the, the old questions of political philosophy? I don't know. My guess is the old questions of political philosophy are as there as they ever have been. But the question is, in, in, when you look at sort of the, uh, the mechanics of what's going on, what becomes possible? So, for instance, another thing is when there is widespread computational language literacy, people will be, your average person will be able to write what they want in computational language. Today, they might send some letter to their, you know, representative somewhere saying, you know, I'd really like it if, you know, there were more this is less that. Yeah, the education so department had more of these resources or what have you, right? Yeah, sure. Right. But imagine that instead what they were doing was writing a piece of computational language that is, these are my preferences. Okay, feed them to the big AI. 
the big AI says, well, I got 100 million of these different uh, you know, computational yeah, essays yeah. Of, people, of people saying this and that and the other, and I can run this big simulation, and I can show that this is going to happen if this happens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, now what do you do under those circumstances? You're thrown right into the kind of old political philosophy questions of, okay, the AI knows what's going to happen more or less. There's some things it can't predict, and it knows what people's preferences are, but there's no right answer. There's no, there's no perfect solution. But the thing that gets interesting is this much more microscopic version of, I mean, it, it's one of the possibilities, is this much more microscopic version of things. The other thing, as I mentioned, is this fact that you may not understand what's going on anymore. As in, right now, you know, for example, when you, you see these automated content selection things happening on the web, yeah. you know, probably no human can really explain why that particular article went to this place, right? And certainly the average person doesn't know why that's happening. You know, the average person, as uh, some kinds of technology, uh, you know, you kind of want the user interface to give you the impression that you know what's going on. Other times it's just like, well, let the AI decide. I don't really need to yeah, know. I yeah. kind of have some vague idea how my GPS is routing me, but I don't really need to know the precise algorithm it's using. That's a place where it's, you know, the goal is fairly clear. In the case of what news articles should I see, the goal is much less clear. And the goal is probably something far, far, far back that was determined in that case by kind of, you know, perhaps not correctly, was sort of centrally determined by some, in this particular case, you know, technology company or whatever else. The companies who won, Stephen, right? It's the, the winners were the ones who determined it, as is often the case. That's the story of history throughout time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not... So it's like, how come they got to decide? Well, mostly through winning, actually, is how they got to decide. Now, now, should they still be able to is another question. This takes us into an idea I'd love to touch on before we, we have to go here around your notion, which I've never really heard articulated. And frankly, I was going to ask you off microphone if you have a whole article on this. But this idea that we're currently being steered, you're right. There's so much we don't understand. And so it makes sense for us to not think, right? Use the GPS. I don't want to remember all the roads of Boston. It's Boston. It's horrendous. So to use the GPS. And then same thing, you know, finding products. You know, if I want to find cheap tray cheese from Amazon, because I'm going to have some people over, just show me the freaking cheese, man. You know, I, I don't really care. But it gets to a point where AI finds its way to naturally fulfill all our goals, prompt us with what's best, whether it be an action, whether it be a purchase, whether it be a decision. That starts to eat up more and more of this ununderstandable space starts to be done better by AI than we can by ourselves. Absolutely. And that could steer us to maybe some places that are more liberating, but maybe some places that are darker. Is there something you want people to understand about where that stretches us? Because people know it today but they don't see the future, I think. Well, I think that the main issue is, this has to do with, you know, what is the sort of constitution for the AIs? That is, you have to define, you know, you can say, okay, I want the AIs to make everything better for me. What does better mean? That gets complicated because, for example, one thing you might say is, let's write the AI constitution. We know, you know, we have all these opinions right now. We believe in this kind of social thing. We don't believe in that kind of social thing. We have all these beliefs. We're sure we're right. Let's write that AI constitution, okay? Now the question is, what happens in 50 years when it's become clear, well, that particular thing had a lot of consequences that we've decided weren't really so good. You know, how do we then change that constitution? Now, by the time the AIs are running the world, it becomes the AIs say, well, that's our constitution. You don't get to change it because if you put in an escape valve where you change it, then the AIs aren't running the world 
and then it's not, you know, you haven't optimized things. You know, if you take the point of view, the AI will optimize everything. Then you say, far be it from us humans to come and mess with that because the AI is going to do a lot better. So the problem is, if you say at time, the year 2021 or something, we write the AI constitution and then we lock it in for the, for the rest of eternity because, you know, then what happens? Now, obviously this has happened before because this is, you know, the wisdom of the ancient story again is, you know, you say this is the sacred book and it's staying that way. We don't get to change it. And people then at various times in history say, no, no, that's no good. We've got to change it. You know, we've got better ideas now. So I think one of the challenging things is if you say, if you are at a point where, yes, the AIs can figure a lot of stuff out better than we can, including figuring out sort of the evolution of our governance and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, how do we set that up? I don't know the answer to that. And, you know, again, we're thrown right back into sort of the typical questions of political philosophy. The main thing is that all of these stories kind of come back more harshly than before to be questions for us, about us, so to speak. We don't get to abdicate. We don't get to say, I, I feel like, and it's happened particularly in this pandemic, people say, oh, science will figure it out. Okay? So it turns out science itself kind of tells you it can't do that. And, you know, there are sort of arbitrary things that have to be done. And they're not things where it's just like, let's just leave it to science and it will figure everything science out. Science isn't a deity unto itself either. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't, doesn't float well, above us all solving problems, coming down and nailing the problem. Oh, yeah. But, but, but let's be realistic. I mean, the view of science and the view of many kinds of issues which people attribute to science are just, I mean, I am so charmed by the way that people view various kinds of things about, uh, for example, global climate and things like that. Yeah. You know, you can just translate that into animistic beliefs that people have had in the past. And, you know, not to say that the, that the conclusions are wrong necessarily, but we really haven't, you know, it's really a story that is surprisingly similar to one that's existed throughout history. And it's not, it's not, and, and this point about, you know, science as the deity, so to speak, is, um, uh, yes, this point is, is, you know, the belief in science is the same kind of story as theological beliefs, it's it's the same same notion. I mean, I think that the uh, difficult thing is, uh, you know, at what point do you say the AIs are running things? Do we believe in the AIs? We don't understand the AIs, just like we don't understand, you know, the ways of God and, and theological sure. kinds of kinds of things. The AI is is doing the best for us. We don't really understand how it's doing the best for us. The fact that the AI just stomped on us in this way, you know. Really, the AI must be doing the best for Moves us. Moves in mysterious ways. Yeah, yeah, right. We believe in the AI, but even though it, it stomped on us in some way and that seemed bad at the time, but really it must be doing the right thing. In a sense, the good news is humans don't have that much trouble with thinking in those kinds of terms. So it's, really it's easy, not like yeah. when the AI you know, acts in that kind of way that people are going to say, oh my gosh, this is so different than anything we've ever had before. You know, it's really not. It's really the same story. But on the other hand, it doesn't feel like, you know, you say, but now it's an AI. Now it's been built with technology. Now it's got science in it and so on. It's got to be really different. It's got science well, in it. Yeah, science. yeah, yeah. It's, it's not. So the thing that in a sense is, is I kind of wonder, one doesn't pick the time in history at which one is born. And there's a question of, you know, 
if one is born at different times in history, is it like drat, I was born, you know, 100 years too early or 100 years too late. And so I can't lead a fulfilled life in, you know, at the time when I was born. And I think one of the things that, you know, one has a certain people like me who think a lot about sort of building the future, so to speak, it's like, gosh, it'd be so exciting to see this future. But actually, I think the thing to realize, which I think is, is perhaps a, uh, a nice realization, is given who you are, so to speak, and what your set of goals that are sort of imprinted on you by the experiences that you have, which come from, you know, this whole sort of chain of development of, of civilization and so on, that locks you into a certain period in history. And while you may be like, oh, I wish I was like 50 years later, 50 years before, something like that, it doesn't really give you, you know, given that you are the product of this long sort of chain of historical development, it doesn't really give you the wherewithal to say, gosh, I could, I could shift by a thousand years and, uh, and all the things that I believe in will still be things that I care about, so to speak, and still be things that can be sort of realized in the world as it is then. It makes me feel a little better about um, sort of living at this particular time in history, so to speak, you know, seeing, imagining a future where sort of anything is possible. That sounds kind of cool. I'm sure kind of interested yeah. in what that's like. But I also am sort of increasingly realizing that that future will be disorientingly different than the present and the set of things. It's like, like you could say, if it's like everybody's playing a video game, I don't play video games. So me for me, you know, for me, it's like if everybody's playing video games for the rest of eternity, it's like, oh my gosh, what are you guys doing? This is unbelievably boring. And people are saying, but I'm really excited because I just won this dinosaur headdress and, you yeah, know, whatever. Who the heck knows? Yeah, yeah. The incremental progress of what's going to happen in the short term is interesting and great to watch. But thinking about sort of the very long term and saying projecting yourself into the very long term and how does it, how does it seem? I think is not as, you know, it feels like, wouldn't it be cool to be part of that, you know, uploaded reality, sure, sure. you know, X number of hundreds of years in the future, so to speak. And that's like, well, yes, but you really don't fit in. So it's my current thinking. I mean, I, I you know, I have to say my thinking about these kinds of things has evolved considerably. And you, you had started off by asking about what, what things do I see that will have sort of big shorter term effects sure, sure, yeah, on, yeah. on the trajectory of things. And, and I have to say that I didn't really get very far in answering that, but I just mentioned a couple of things. I mean, so, so one thing to realize, one thing I've been thinking about recently is molecular scale computing. So right now, you know, our computers are electronics. Yes. You know, they're solid state electronics. But with one exception, which is biology is essentially doing molecular scale liquid phase computation. And that's uh, is different from our solid phase electronic computation that happens in our computers today. As a, actually a spin-off from our physics project, I think I have a sort of new way to think about how to do molecular scale computation. And what's interesting about that is it gives one at least the conceptual possibility of kind of a biology 2.0. Because right now we have only one example of molecular scale computation, which is what happens in our biology. But what we can imagine is let's design a new biology, a new molecular scale computation system. And, you know, what will that look like? Now, for us, you know, again, it's like this ocean of computational possibilities. There's a zillion possible molecular computation systems. It just you could happened design. to be DNA, right? It just, it just bumbled into like the way that our DNA works. Oh, but it could have bumbled one. into who knows how many other ways life can be formed. 
Right, right. And so I think the thing that was most important in the shorter term is the interface between sort of biology 2.0 and biology 1.0. That is, how do you take the things that we have in our biology and interface it to sort of a new generation of molecular scale computing? So, you know, we have our biological organisms that do this or that thing. It's like, then you get to say, rather than saying, let's repair the kidney and make it, you know, with, with something similar to what a kidney is, it's like, let's make something which sort of is another version of molecular scale computing that can interface with the thing we have right now. It's kind of like, like we take our computers and we have to make user interfaces. We have to make computational languages to connect what's computationally possible for our computers and what we care about. Similarly, at the level of the sort of molecular scale computing, we have to connect what's computationally possible in molecular scale computing with what we biologically care about, so to speak. So I think that's another... That's another kind of thing. And that will have an effect, I suspect, on um, many aspects of our biology are fairly specific to the details of biology yeah. 1.0, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. But nevertheless, the, the overall objectives that biology is trying to achieve can be achieved by something different from biology 1.0. That's the thing which I think is, a, you know, I don't really know. One of the things that I realized about the things I've worked on in my life is that um, I try and figure stuff out and I try and build technology. And thankfully, lots of people use the technology and figure out science ideas and so on. And the thing that I have increasingly realized is that the business I'm in is basically an artifacts from the future business. That is, you know, I invent these things and they are things which in some number of years, everybody will say, oh, that was pretty obvious. But that number of years is long compared to a human lifespan. It's kind of a funny thing because, you know, I, I've been able to see in science and in technology things which to me have seemed completely inexorable. This is how it has to happen. And some of them, you know, it's taken 30, 40 years, and that's what's ended up happening. And it's it's kind of nice to be able to actually see it. But there are other things like this physics project I just did. I'd been intending to work on that project and building up to it for about 30 years. I had told millions of people, literally millions, about the sort of the foundations of that project 20 years ago. Nothing happened. You right. just didn't have the time. But, You're working on too many other things. and No, no, nothing happened in the world. right? So, I mean, in other words, millions of people knew the foundations of that project. I kind of told people this is the direction to go in. Nothing happened. And so then 20 years later, for a variety of reasons, I got to do it myself. And turns out it was actually much easier than I expected. And, you know, we were able to make really very dramatic progress. But I sort of realized, and it's a little bit humbling to realize this, if I hadn't done that, it would have been 50 years. I mean, it would have been, you know, th these things, it's like it had already been 20 years since millions of people knew about it. It would have been another 50 years before anybody actually did this. And so the question of when you talk about things like, you know, many of these things, some of these things I tell you, I don't really know what's going to happen, but some of them, it's pretty inexorable. I mean, like, for example, this, this whole molecular scale computing, biology 2.0, that's an inexorable story. That will it will happen that way, but it will take a while, and it will take longer than you know. It, it's sometimes very hard to predict how long these things will take. I mean, I think that there are you know there are a whole collection of these other things where sort of this idea of computation is sort of slowly playing itself out in lots of different domains. Like another one, fairly near term probably, is general purpose robotics, which hasn't happened. You know, we have general purpose computers, we don't have general purpose no, robots. We definitely don't. And people imagined in the 1950s. They talked about universal constructors, which was kind of an idea of could you make the analog of universal stuff that was 
in the construction of things rather than in the computation of things, right? And we don't yet have that. Every five years or so, I make another little effort. I was going to say, when, out, you, when are you going to just invent the science, Stephen? I mean, when are you just going to spin it up in your basement? Yeah. yeah, right. I've been, I've been, I try every so often. I made another attempt about, uh, well, last year, actually. Uh, and it's one of these things where, well, like this molecular scale computing, it's kind of like you can have the conceptual ideas, but there's a certain ambient technology that has to reach a certain point yeah. before it actually makes sense to pounce. Because, you know, you could spend, you can spend 20, 30 years developing the underlying infrastructure to be able to do something. I would say that the things that I feel least confident about right now in terms of my understanding of how they work are these things about the, the computational implications for uh, sort of the way that human society works. Yeah, the democracy problems you talked about, right? Right. I mean, you know, an example of one that I've been thinking about recently is about economics. Economics has had a hard time sort of being a science, so to speak. Yeah. And I think I'm beginning to understand why and I'm beginning to understand. So, so one of the things people said, oh, in 1800 or so, People said, one day there will be a social physics. One day, just as Newton was able to figure out, you know, laws of mechanics that govern physical kinds of things, one day there will be a Newton of a social domain, and it will be possible to figure out, just as Newton figured out all these things about mechanics, it will be possible to figure out, you know, how things work in sort of the social domain. Asimov's uh, psychohistory there a little bit. Yes, yeah, right. something akin so, to that. So people then say, and, and what I realized recently is that this phenomenon of computational irreducibility is prevents one, it, it kind of is a blocker to certain kinds of scientific progress. But Newton was very lucky in what he studied. He studied mechanics of you know, rigid bodies and uh, objects moving around. Had he decided to study fluid turbulence, you know, the random motion of fluids and so on, he would not have been able to build his mechanics. He wouldn't have been able to build something which was a predictable science. And when you look at social science, a lot of what it's ended up doing is being forced into thinking about things which are like turbulence and fluids, which are probably forcing one, rubbing one's nose in computational irreducibility. So one of the questions is, are there things that one can study there, which like Newton was able to sort of slice off some particular piece of the story of physics yep, yep, yep. that was explainable? You know, are there things like that to be done? And, and in fact, one of my recent things, which was my little personal exercises, trying to understand uh, the meaning of money, as in what is, you know, when you think about value in economics. You, you got a lot in crypto right now, Stephen. <laughs> well, that's a, I, I, I think we may have figured out a way using, using ideas from the physics project. I think we may have figured out kind of a, a new generation of how to think about blockchain. So that's kind of an interesting, it's a spin-off from basically physics, which is very bizarre. The fact is, there are things about the way that distributed computation happens that are very much like the way that things happen in physics now that we understand more about physics. I'll have to put a, a tab on when you have the 10,000-word article on this exact topic because I think it's coming. It sounds like it's coming, huh? Yeah, yeah right, right. Well, I think, <laughs> I think the, you know, for example, I'm trying to understand, you know, in economics, there are these sort of core questions about where does value come from? Does, you know, and I've thought about it in the context of cryptocurrencies and things. Do you need fundamental economic activity to justify the value of a currency? Or can it be just the pure network of transactions that justifies the value of something? And so I'm beginning to understand that this idea of computational irreducibility is something that is 
where you can have sort of a disembodied sense of value independent of sort of economic activity. And I, it's kind of ironic because, you know, this whole idea of, you know, that started out in Bitcoin of, of you know, mining, Bitcoin mining, yeah. I'm pretty sure actually came from stuff I wrote about computational irreducibility in the 1980s. I mean, one doesn't know because we don't know who, you know, who Satoshi yeah, yeah. One doesn't know, but-, but It'd be um, pleasing well. to you for sure if that was the case. Right, right. But it's, it's I, I'm, I, well, I actually have pretty good reasons to believe that there was- a, a Some sort inspiration of a, a there directly connection. drawing from, okay, got it. But what's interesting about that, here's the thing about sort of predicting the future and understanding consequences of things, okay? So, you know, I invented this idea of computational irreducibility back in the early 1980s. And I thought about it as a thing to do with basic science and to do with understanding the limits of predictability in science and all those kinds of things. And if you'd asked me at that time, how will computational irreducibility be used, right? What will the consequences of computational irreducibility be? Well, I, I did already understand things about sort of the inability to predict consequences of decisions and things like this. But it would be like kind of if you ask, you know, let's say you went back and asked Alan Turing in 1936, what are these computer things you've invented going to be used for? Word processing would not have been an early answer. You know, video conferencing, even a less likely answer, yep. right? And so for me, it's sort of interesting. And in terms of thinking about, thinking about the future, it's kind of interesting. Is computational irreducibility, one of its big uses ended up being cryptocurrency mining. And it ended up that computational irreducibility is the thing that causes, you know, people to burn, you know, the, the electrical output of Denmark or something looking for, for bitcoins. I mean, it's bizarre that an idea which started as an idea in basic science ended up becoming something practical in the world in something as unexpected yeah. as that. And for me, that's a, it's a sort of a sobering thing because, you know, one invents things today and, uh, you know, I figured out all kinds of stuff that comes out of our physics project and so on. And it's like, these are, these are things which to me look like basic science. You know, I think about the examples of things like computational irreducibility turning into Bitcoin mining and so on. And it's like, what will these consequences be? Yeah. And, you know, I think that um, some of the things that I'm realizing, so for example, a thing I realized recently, so I've, I've long avoided the question of sort of what is consciousness? I've kind of long said, oh, I don't have anything to say about that. I hope you're right about it one day. I think now through our physics project, I've kind of backed into understanding pretty well, actually, sort of what consciousness really is. And it's actually a little bit, it's a little bit of a downer in the end, because what one I had thought was there's this sort of hierarchy, life to intelligence to consciousness. It's kind of life yeah, is one yeah, level, yeah, yeah. and sure. then intelligence sort of beyond that, and consciousness is beyond that. I don't think it's true. I think consciousness is a step back from intelligence. And I think what it, it's a story of kind of the fact that consciousness is a story of coherence of experience. That is, when you imagine, for example, in quantum mechanics, and this is where it's come up, you imagine this kind of infinitely branching universe of possible things that can happen, okay? Well, our brains are part of that infinitely branching universe. So our brains are also infinitely branching. And the point of consciousness is if you posit that you have an experience that is coherent, that puts certain constraints on the way that this branching brain perceives the branching universe. And so what ends up, what you end up realizing is consciousness is a story, I think, of 
coherence of experience. That is, if, you, if there are all these different threads that can be happening, and you were to follow all those threads, it would not give you the perception of consciousness that we have. So in a sense, uh, for example, people say you do parallel computing, distributed computing. Distributed computing is pretty hard to understand. Well, the reason I think is because it's fundamentally incompatible with our notion of consciousness. That is, consciousness is a story of essentially sequential computation. You know, there's a coherence of experience. This happens, this happens, this happens. It's not all these different things are happening. That's a, that's a story of something that the universe does, but that our consciousness does not fit into. And in fact, much of what we perceive in physics is precisely a consequence of the fact that we are perceiving things through this kind of consciousness, you know, coherence of experience kind of story. So right now, that's a science kind of science, philosophy of yeah, science yeah, kind yeah. of thing. But I have no doubt that that realization, that sort of consciousness is about this coherence of experience and is about sort of uh, breaking down what would otherwise be a distributed experience into something which is more sequential, that idea, I bet, has some big consequences for sort of the whole uh, social, political organization kind of uh, way things work because... In a sense, that idea is a story of how individual humans, an essential feature of us individual humans, in which we differ from the generic sort of, of what's happening in nature. But it's also something that, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't know its consequences. I'm, I'm not going to be able to make them up yeah, on yeah, the spot. Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, I mean, I think that the, um, you know, that's an example of something which is sort of, it's sobering to me to look at the example of something like computational irreducibility and to realize that in, you know, in 40 years, that went from this sort of science idea to Bitcoin to of all bizarre, things, yeah, yeah, you know, of all bizarre things, yeah. and just just like you know, Turing machines went from an idea about solving decision problems in mathematical logic in the space of uh, well, that was about thirty-five years to word processing. You know, it's the first really big application of computers. Well, I guess I'm thinking of take homes for the for the audience here. It's, I mean, this the idea of consciousness you're articulating. I think what you're saying is that this will similarly splinter into who knows how many other implications in different dark corners. Yeah. So for, for those right. of you listening in, clearly you can tell there's there's hardly a field that Stephen has not in some way, shape, or form impacted or is in the process of doing so. And also that hopefully you can all see a little bit more in terms of the infiniteness of possibilities and computation and what the future of our democracy looks like and the future of our tech. We touched on doggone near everything that I had on the list here, Stephen. So I know that's all we had for time, but I sincerely appreciate you being able to join us on this episode. Pleasure to chat. So that's all for episode one of eight in our AI Futures series on the future of the human experience. I hope you learned a lot from Stephen. I certainly enjoyed our conversation. Stephen is never at loss for ideas, and I was loath to stop him in any of the rabbit holes that we went down in this interview as they all, I think, added some color to the bigger picture future image that he was painting for us. So I hope you enjoyed that. And if you have liked this episode, then be sure to tune in every Saturday as we launch this AI Future series for the next seven Saturdays. We will have new episodes. We've got some amazing guests coming up. Our next guest is a economics professor who also happens to be one of the best known names in the artificial general intelligence debates of the last decade or more, uh, who shares perspectives with us. We also have a leading thinker at the intersection of artificial intelligence and gaming. We have one of the most prominent voices for AI ethics at the IEEE who's joining us in this series. 
We have the former director for the Group for AI, Mind, and Society at the University of Connecticut, and many more. So each episode brings a completely different perspective, but they all do bring one thing in common, and that is showing you a window into how day-to-day life will change as AI becomes much more powerful. Not more powerful one year from now, but more powerful 10 years, even 20 years from now. If you're interested in what that future holds and what might be the most important ethical considerations for that future that we're creating, this is going to be a series that you're going to have a lot of fun with. I certainly enjoyed recording all of these episodes, and I am more than excited uh, to be able to roll this series out week by week. So, of course, on Tuesdays, we will still have our normal programming here on the AI and Business Podcast. You will get use cases. You will get trends. You will get the ROI of AI in different industries, which is what we are known for covering. But if you want to tune in on the weekends or you want to download the weekend episode and listen to it throughout the week, you'll also get this interesting future view. We had such a fun time with it last summer with the series that kicked off with Stuart Russell. I wanted to make sure we could make it happen again this summer. So thanks for tuning in for this one. I look forward to catching you on Tuesday and hopefully for next Saturday here on the AI and Business Podcast.